Hi, I'm Emily, and I wish I knew more about how to let go of a shift after I finished. Hi, my name's Joseph, and I wish when I started I'd learn more about how to communicate with patients, family, and friends. Hi, my name's Lily, and I wish I knew more about dressing selection for wound care. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur. And today we've got Melanie Proper, the pain management nurse practitioner, with us to talk about the very curious world of pain. Welcome, Melanie. Good afternoon. We'd like to start the show by uh, getting to know our guest a little bit and particularly the journey that you've had in nursing. So go back right to the start. When you were coming out of school, what, where, where were things there? What were you thinking you were going to do with your life? I was going to be a scientist. Um, I fell into nursing by mistake. I never wanted to be a nurse. My um, brother had leukaemia as a child and I spent my life surrounded by children who died. So it wasn't an area I felt comfortable in. Um, However, I worked out that I love anatomy and physiology and pharmacology and I love people and nursing was the obvious combination at the end of the day. So I became started nursing in 1987, which I just worked out means I've been doing this for 35 years. And, um, and I think in the end, because this is guaranteed to be the next question, is why did I end up in pain? And the answer to that question is my brother also, because he would have procedures that he would scream while they were doing them, because back then they didn't know when you had leukaemia whether they would change the results. And he would tear the uniforms off the nurses. And my parents didn't realise that at eight you were... Um, you could hear what was happening in the rooms when you weren't there on the school holidays. And so... I was very good at doing pain myself and, and managing pain um, with as a nurse on the wards, and I love working in the wards, but what I really wanted to do was in, to inspire every nurse in the hospital to manage pain well. So I took on the acute pain service 26 years ago, and, and that's what I'm trying to do and probably why I'm here today. Wow. So pain for you is very personal um, and has, you know, is grounded in this deep passion to make sure that perhaps people don't have the same experience that your family had. Absolutely. Pain, pain is something that our procedures unfortunately mean is is hard to avoid, but that doesn't mean we don't, there aren't things that we can do from how we interact with our patients through the medication we give them and we should be doing it all. Let's get straight into it. So we'll start with your number one and that's, please explain to us like what is pain and why should we treat it? So pain is the brain processing the, the information from the tissues, the information from your spinal cord and the information in the brain itself. So the context and the emotional input that you have about your, your moment in time and your previous experiences. And it pulls all that together and it comes up with a credible evidence of either I am in in risk of tissue damage or I'm not. And if the brain puts that all together and decides you are at risk of tissue damage, 
it will change the chemicals and neurotransmitters in your body and it will amplify the rate of and frequency of messages being sent to your brain and it'll amplify all of the um, information travelling from the site of, of injury to the brain. And think, I bet you one thing to an effect you don't know or you don't really understand is that the nerve in your big toe that sits next to the cut in your toe that runs all the way to your spinal cord is one nerve cell. It travels fast. And then it's one nerve cell from your brain to the spinal cord that meets that one nerve. So we're not talking about lots of little chains. We're talking about instantaneous messaging and your brain impacts that and makes it faster and a super highway and it does it over and over again as it scrutinises the danger. So our job is to change that messaging and to slow down the chemical messaging from the body. Wow. So can people experience pain differently? You know where some people say, well, I have a very high threshold for pain or I'm very acutely sensitive to pain. Is that true? Yes and no. So patients do say that a lot. Um, and they that what they're saying is true, but not in the way they think it. So when you have pain all the time that you understand is predictable, it isn't frightening, then you put a lot of strategies in place to keep your stress levels down. You manage that stress so that the stress doesn't increase so more noradrenaline more adrenaline in your system actually amplifies your pain and it lowers your cortisol levels and cortisol actually has a um, pain and algesic effect all on its own right so if you're caught in that access then you and also affects your sleep so which lowers your cortisol as well so all of those elements are, are make managing pain hard so if you understand it and it's not frightening then your adrenaline levels don't go up and you can strategize your way through it so I relax before I do this because I know it hurts I do it I break it down into small parts I do some of it now and some of it later and it all goes fine but your nervous system every minute of every day is getting input and it's getting input that says you're in danger and it is trying to, your brain is trying to protect you. So it actually upregulates the nerve pathways from your brain and makes them super highways. So, and it actually recruits nerves that don't normally send pain messages and makes them start sending pain messages. They never did it before, they now do it now, they get involved. And that happens at the periphery, so where the injury is or was. It happens at the spinal cord and it happens at the brain. And it's a continuing circling process that upregulates and makes it more. So when that patient who's had pain a lot comes into hospital and we put in an IV, often they yell and you think, goodness me, I know you're, you're a Burns patient. This is, you've had far worse pain than this. And it's because it's unexpected and their nervous system is wound up. So you put a, an average painful experience into a wound up circulating system that sends the super information to the brain. And, and so that patient will sort of go, oh, did you get the nerve or something? I think you've got the bone. Yep. Because it hurts more than they expected and it's more distressing and their system that's already supercharged with takes on this massive stressful jump. And so they're more than you think. And unfortunately what that sometimes happens with us, us as healthcare professionals, is we interpret that as being manipulative or we interpret that as being false. And neither of those things are true. Wow. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Both Liz and I just sitting here going, <laughs> wow. I would be lying if I said I haven't heard pain explained this way before because I've had the privilege of uh, hearing Melanie talk about pain before. But it really s strikes me that there's just that inextricable link between perception 
and reality of what's going on and we're going to interpret someone else's experience through our perception and our experiences and being really conscious of that, which I think is just a generalizable stance to be aware of within any assessment we're doing with someone. Yes. We're always going to have the filter of what you've seen before or what you think. Um, I think we get trapped a lot in two things. We don't explain what are really common things to patients. And a really good example of that is a patient who's, who's had abdominal surgery yesterday and stands up out of their bed today. And as they stand up, they stay leaned over and grab their bellies and go, oh, and what's going through their head? It's really simple. I'm going to burst open. Yeah. We never say to them, it's okay. We stitched you up in layers. You're not going to burst open. But it's an obvious thought. And so that stress and that worry makes their pain worse. Yeah. The first poo after a C-section is terrible, you know, terrifying. It's like having the baby you didn't have. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess what's really striking me is that there's this really strong connection between the psyche or and the experience of pain and there's a whole range of context around that. Context and emotion, absolutely. Both need to be to be sorted by the brain and 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 come to decisions. The classic one, and you need to be very careful if you use this with patients, but there are cases of, of uh, patients who have had their arms uh, bitten off by sharks. Uh, there's a classic one. She was bit, It was in Hawaii. And when you surf in Hawaii, you're actually off the beach quite a long way. It's more than 100 metres and you've got to actually paddle back in. So her friends tied the rope around her arms so she didn't bleed to death and they paddled back to shore. She had no pain for that whole way back. She sat on the beach waiting for the ambulance to come. She remembers feeling horrifically thirsty but no pain until she heard the ambulance because then she was safe. Yeah, okay. Survival, the context, I need to go all that way back. If I panic and fall off my board now, things are going to go horribly wrong. All of those things were the context, the emotion, and they got her safely to the beach. And that was the priority then and there. So it's not that there wasn't tissue damage. It wasn't that the brain was incapable of feeling pain. But at that moment in time, something else was more important. That leads us beautifully, doesn't it, into our second point, which is understanding that there's a very strong connection between pain and stress. Can you tell us a lot about that? So um, your pain will actually trigger the, the stress responses. So your brain thinks you're in danger. It thinks you need to run away from the tiger that's chasing you because effectively our brain is still cavemen. We haven't actually evolved. Um, there's a lot of epigenics over the top, but the brain <laughs> underneath is still a caveman. You need to run away from a tiger, and if you're injured, you can't do that. And so it perceives it as dangerous, and it starts changing both your brain, your neurotransmitters, your, your messaging, and also all of the normal stress responses. So your flight, flight response, your blood um, is directed away from your gut. Why why do patients in pain often not want to eat and have nausea? Well, it could be the medication or the antibiotics or actually the pain itself. If you're getting no blood to your gut, you're not going to want to eat. You're not going to want, you're going to feel sick. Um, and it's not the medication at all. It's actually that you need more. Um, so the stress response is that big and your brain doesn't perceive it as any other way. The way to then change that context, change that stress is to give good information. A really classic classic example is the pain team went to see a patient who'd had a full midline cut a laparotomy and he was it was in the afternoon and he was just been back from theatre about half an hour and his pain was 10 out of 10. He couldn't take a very deep breath. He was very distressed. 
And we made some quick changes. We added some ketamine and we did some other things. And then we went away to see some other patients and we came back. We actually were so worried about them, we came back in half an hour. Now, ketamine will not work in half an hour. It takes two to three hours, really, to hit steady state. So we really hadn't expected much at that point of time. And as we walked into the room, he was pushing his IV trolley into the toilet, walking across the room, looking very comfortable. Mm. So what happened in the interim was that the surgeons came to see him. He'd had a exploratory laparotomy and they'd come and said, Mr. Jones, not his real name, good news, you don't have cancer. So his stress that was underneath that pain, so stress, pain on top of that, was gone. Mm. Now he could manage the pain that he had. He was okay. Yeah. Stress makes your pain worse. It doesn't cause it, but it definitely makes it worse. That also includes frustration, anger, all those other emotions will increase those responses. Interesting is a topic that's come up in almost every podcast in some way or another is the concept of stress and then the threat challenge appraisal. And you really hit on it that it it's tipping the balance back towards a manageable challenge uh, rather than a threat perception where we've got the cascade and the negative feedback loop in the threat state, the fight, flight, freeze state to there are some resources. And some of that is cognitive resource being able to down-modulate your pain intentionally and being told you don't have cancer, I, I'd imagine provides a fair bit more bandwidth for that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Some of that is actually taking the edge off the pain enough to allow the bandwidths to do that. So I, I love that that has been such a feature in terms of so many different um, contexts that we've been talking about is this reframing or reshaping from a threat state to a challenge state. And I think going with that theme of our patients not really understanding what's happening to them in, in a in a hospital setting or in a disease process, is that they they really just want to know that even if they're sore, that this is expected, that healing will make this better, tomorrow will be a new day, that that you're four days post-surgery and, and I would expect you to be sore for another four weeks. This isn't going to be better tomorrow. And I often, you have to be very careful because you don't want to make it sound like you're, you're undervaluing what they're saying because you're not but you know look just the logic things like last time you sprained your ankle really badly how long did it take before you could stand on it and walk six weeks four weeks like a really good sprain we just use power tools on your back you're yeah. not going to be quicker than that <laughs> like yeah. you know sometimes it's as simple as those things what you're experiencing is is normal it's not a good word but is it's in what i would expect expected, to see yeah. the expectations and i think helping patients manage their expectations you know we use power tools on yesterday today you're going to be sore yeah you know that that i would expect this you're doing okay so what you're really saying is that there's this really important role of communication and information in pain enormous role and so the more we can communicate and, and set up expectations, not as a you're expected to feel sore so you should be in pain and so we're not going to treat it, but the more we can set up an expectation of, you know, this is where it's going to be, perhaps the more a patient can then say, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be at and so this is what I might need in terms of pain relief. Yep. There's a bit of a conundrum. Like how do you – how do we not uh, – turn people into opiate addicts when we are asking them if they have pain and we're not actually educating them. So it's really important to say to a patient, well, you're going to get up and have showers and it's going to be a bit sore. So why don't we take some medicine before you get out of bed rather than afterwards? Because your pain out of control is harder to manage. Simple 
easy things for them to understand and apply when they get home. Because at the end of the day, when they go home, we hand them a strip of tablets and say, off you go. We don't, they don't have to report to anybody. They don't have to. Yeah. So they need to understand how and when to use it and how much to use and what's reasonable. So talking about function, talking about planning, those things are important and we should build it into our standard care. Um, I, I I love that you just raised that issue because I was just thinking about that, how people say you need to stay ahead of your pain. So nearly every single person I know says, I've got a really terrible headache, it's turning into a migraine, and you might say, well, why don't you take something? And they'll say, I'll wait until it gets really bad. Um, how important is it to stay ahead of pain? In acute pain, it's really important because what you're doing is changing the nervous system after an injury and it's going to change tomorrow tomorrow's going to be different the messages the nervous system is sending are going to be different and but if you've let that pain be out of control then you've actually made your brain send a message to upregulate its ability to recognize pain and send that message to the brain and it's done that with serotonin and adrenaline and if you let those those things happen you actually create a nervous system that is wired to transmit pain fast. If, however, you have pain that's been there a long time, so you have underlying chronic back pain, then understanding that the surgery you had yesterday isn't going to make that pain better today. That's pretty rare, and you're always educated that that's unlikely because we don't operate for pain. We operate for dysfunction. However, patients really always secretly hope that that this is the case where I'll feel better. Right. And it's absolutely 100% understandable that someone wants to be free of pain. We shouldn't be making them feel guilty for, for that. That that Why wouldn't you? But my medication won't get rid of your pain. We haven't created something that will do that. It will modify it so you can function. That is the aim of the game. And you both need to be on that page. So if you, if you know normally that when you get a migraine, if you go into a dark room and you shut it and you well, well hydrate, you shut the curtains and you lie peacefully for a while, that you will feel better. You are so much better doing that earlier than letting it get really terrible and taking a tablet. So whatever you do to manage the things that are known to you, you are better off doing them earlier than later, whether it's taking a tablet or another activity that makes your pain better. Um, or more manageable, and and leaving that till the pain is out of control, it's certainly much harder to bring it, rein it back. Yeah, I think that kind of steps us pretty well towards the concept of reassuring your brain, which is the the next one that you framed up. It's that changing the architecture of how pain is being processed. Is that what what that means, or what are you what do um, you mean? Yes, uh, no, um, yes. The result is that the result is a change in the architecture. So. The beginning, though, is you've had surgery, you, you're sure that when you get out of bed, your tummy's going to burst open and it's really going to hurt. And you get out of bed because the nurse makes you and the physio makes you and you walk to the toilet and you don't burst open. And it was pretty uncomfortable. To, it wasn't actually as horrible as you thought it would be. You're sending messages on a tissue level, so the there wasn't a big burst of blood and all those neurotransmitters going to your brain to tell it that further damage had happened. 
your movement and the muscles that were moving like normal and feeling like normal. And in fact, your back that was really happy that you got out of bed because it hates being in bed all that time and being on that surgical table for those eight hours of your surgery was really bad anyway. All of those messages are going to your brain as your back thinks, actually, I feel a bit better if I'm moving and I feel a bit, tummy's pretty sore, but the back's happier. All of those contextual things are feeding in nonstop to your brain all of the time. The brain is then scrutinising it and going, oh, well not quite as bad as I thought it was. I can, I can, I can downregulate that change at the spinal cord I put in there earlier and make it less, it's not as dangerous as I thought. I can actually change that. And it will send messages straight away to downregulate that rate of transmission. It will change that architecture. Like anything, any nerve connection that you use more frequently will become more, uh, you talk about it having more mass and more uh, synaptic efficacy. So any nerve connection you're using a lot becomes more efficient at doing that. So if your brain is using your normal nerve pathways for moving, pre-existing nerve pathways that you've used all your life are actually stronger. And over time, you will use them in preference to the ones about pain. So the architecture shifts back to what's already existing in there. And the more you move, the more that's likely to become the case. You're sending credible evidence you're safe. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So if I, I'm sitting here as the social worker and I'm thinking if I'm a you know, student nurse, I'm thinking, what the hell is she talking about? It's, it's so scientific and so fascinating. So let me see if I can translate this in a way that makes sense to my brain. Cool. So re- reassuring the brain, what we want to do is really turn those pain sensors down a little bit to say, actually, we're okay. Stop being so sensitive, like there's some normal function. So is that why we kind of, someone's had a a knee reconstruction and the next day we're saying, we're going to get you up and help you get to the toilet. We're going to shower you so that your body feels at least a bit refreshed and you feel clean and you're in your own pyjamas and you're out of a shower gown. So the rest of your brain's going, okay, I'm actually safe. It's just my knee. Everyone, you know, turn it down and then we can just see actually what is the real pain that's still left. Is that kind of it? Um, that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so all of those things are important. And, and on a purely physiological level, the more you move a part of your body that is injured – the more your body, your brain will send nutrients and macrophages to do their job and all of those immune responses will actually be heightened and improve recovery and and facilitate healing when you use it. If you don't use something, we, we know that when you look at an arm and a cast, it gets weak and shriveled mm. and the joints are stiff when you take it out of the cast. The same is true of any part of your body you don't use and you protect it becomes stiff and sore and disabled and weak. Mm. So you actually want your body to not take that protective behaviour to that point. So all of those moving and showering and all the things that we're doing, we know that it you know stops you getting a blood clot, we know that it stops you getting pneumonia, all of those things, but also it helps your brain change that messaging system. With that groundwork laid, we're going to move into how we assess pain, assess and monitoring pain and function. Can you take us through a bit of a structure and, a, and your sort of mindset on that? Okay. Assessment tools are very useful for communicating a common language. And there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in the literature about whether we should be asking people for pain scores or not. But the truth is you do want 
to have a common language with the patient. And so that means you should be educating the patient what you're asking and what you're meaning. And it's important to understand that every health professional who asks the patient what their pain score is, is expect is doing it for a different reason. And the patients kind of sense that. So the physio is asking how sore you are because they're trying to work out how much more pain they can cause you when they take you for a walk. Mm. The, the RMO is asking how much pain you've got because he's trying to work out if he can send you home tomorrow or the day after. And the nurse is asking how much pain you've got because they're trying to work out if they need to give you more analgesia. Three completely different things, exactly the same question. What's your pain score between zero and 10? So the context behind the question matters as much. So explaining that I'm asking this because I need to understand if I give you medication, how long that's going to last and what effect it's had is reasonable to do. You're not leading the patient to give you a number or a score. You're giving it context for why they're answering this question because really it's just a number. But it's a number that's theirs and it's a number that's consistent to them. So it's meaningful to them. You cannot compare it to another person. You need to use a a tool that's appropriate to the patient. I had a patient who... um, when I asked him pain scores between zero and 10, he went, I left school when I was 15 because I hated maths and I can't possibly. And he was a, <laughs> he was a bike, he had come off a motorbike. He was just looking, and he was a tattoo artist by living. And, and he just looked at me like I was stupid. Anyway, so we worked out the television distraction scale. So if he felt that he would be distracted from his favourite program, then it was probably like an 8 out of 10. And if he felt that he would be distracted only in the ads, then it was maybe 4 out of 10. Yeah. Worked well. We knew exactly what we were talking about. It was great. And then the next shift nurse went in to talk to the patient and he's, how are you and how's your pain? He said, oh, I think I'd be distracted in the ads. And the nurse came out, well, how long has he been confused? Because oh, yeah. I hadn't <laughs> communicated any of this fabulous tool I'd come up with. And... Um, so that's the other probably really important thing. Everybody needs to be on the same page when you're using tools and it makes sense. And you should never change a person's pain score because if I come along as the next nurse and you've been writing four all day and the patient now tells me eight and he's been saying eight but you think he doesn't look like that, then I would have to think something's gone horribly wrong with this mm. patient and I'd have to do a full assessment and get a doctor to assess him too. So it's super important that you don't and that's where the concept of a functional activity score comes in. So if your patient is saying, so it's A, B, C, A is that they can't do what we want them to do, B is that they're okay, and C is they're doing really well functionally. So if your patient is saying my pain is 10 and they're walking to the toilet, well, that gives them a 10 score and a C. So yeah, yes, they hurt, but they're doing what we need them to do. If a patient is breathing really shallowly with no power behind it, and they're saying their pain score is three, then I probably give them a 3A because they're not functioning the way we need and they need a review. So that's why the functional activity score is so important and is now part of the um, National Standards for Acute Pain Management that we document that. So it gives much more context. The other things that you should always be thinking about with pain is, is, is this pain expected? So, you know, in line of the surgery that they've had, has it changed since you've seen them or from handover? And you want to ask where the pain is, what it feels like, what makes it feel better and what makes it feel worse. It's really your basic questions because the amount of times that a patient is saying, oh, my pain is my pain is just terrible. Back surgery, being flat on his back for three days. Oh, my pain is just getting worse. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's eight. Oh. Yesterday your pain was five. Can you tell me where your pain? Oh, my abdomen. It keeps cramping. The poor man has got constipation it's nothing to do with his back and no one's asked the right questions so even when you think you know what their pain is ask where it is ask them to point 
Um, super important because it's easy to to miss something that's really important, um, like a pee on a patient with broken ribs on one side and a polyembolus forming on the other side because we're not asking the right question. So as a as as a nurse who's looking at the the list of medications on the back of the the chart, so the doctor's written you know endone five to ten Q for LE or Panadol. One gram for if I'm hoping the Panadol's regular, and if the Panadol's regular, please don't ask the nurse, the patient, if they want it. Just encourage them to have it because it's opiate sparing. But apart from that, if it's PRN and there's anti-inflammatories there as well, and you'll and there's endone and there's fentanyl written up as an injection, and you're looking at this list of medication, going, okay, well, what do I give? How do I choose? And one of the things that with opiates as a nurse, what are you responsible for? So if your patient has an addict history, is your job is to recognise from whatever they've told you that there's a concern and convey that to someone. Your job is not to withhold their analgesia at that moment in time. That patient, regardless of their history, is as at risk or more risk if they actually have an issue from not getting pain relief. You're not going to change their addictive history with one tablet. Mm. But your job is to report your concerns and that to be followed up, whether it's chronic pain or whether it's um, some other concern. Your other job is to assess the pain and... And if they're not functioning at a reasonable level and not able to do the things you need them to do, then they need whatever analgesia they have. So the assessment is incredibly valid. And then the final thing for safety is you have to assess whether your patient is alert enough, whether we're going to suppress their breathing by giving them an opiate. So an opiate um, on top of other um, centrally depressing things. So if your patient's getting benzos, for example, and they're sleepy from the benzo and they're describing that they have pain, you still should think twice about what opiate you're giving them because the thing that keeps our patients safe is their sedation score. So if your patient has a sedation score of two, which means that they're difficult to wake up and they're falling asleep within either mid-sentence or, you know, within 10 seconds if you're stopping talking to them, they can't have more opiates without having a review. They, they are too sedated and you could stop them breathing, whether it's caused by opiates or it's caused by something else. One thing, the most common misconception is that respiratory rate is the thing that you have to monitor in these patients. A res- respiratory rate is a really late indicator. So by the, what the opiate's doing is moving your... CO2 response curve to the right, which basically means that as you breathe less, your CO2 levels rise. And normally we would comp- we would compensate for that by breathing rapidly. So by the time your patient's actually breathing slowly, so their respiratory rate has dropped, it's very late in that journey. Mm. It's not early in that journey. So it's a late indicator. So you should never ignore the respiratory rate, but it's not the one you should decide whether I give an opiate to this patient on or not. That's the station score. And we're getting stuck in that CO2 narcosis space then as well because the carbon dioxide has a primary effect on the brain causing a sedative effect. So we're in that loop of doom by then, aren't we? You are. There's a very cool World Health Organization quote that says that no one ever stopped breathing while they're awake. And that's probably very true to remember. (laughs) So, Melanie, you've just kind of led us beautifully into the role of the bedside nurse with pain. But as the non-nurse at the table, you know, you've got this profound knowledge with all this amazing science, neuroscience behind pain. If I'm the bedside nurse, do I have the ability to be able to do this? And how do we make it less complex so that it's just cut down in a way that it makes sense to me? Okay, so the assessment, does your patient have pain? How 
bad is the pain? What do I have prescribed to treat it? And then you do need to understand the pharmacology enough to know how long it'll take for that medication to have an effect. And we all go for the, the standard 30 minutes, um, but some things are longer. Oral morphine's an hour. Um, sub- sublingual brufenorphine's an hour. Tramadol's 20 minutes. So you really need to know your pharmacology and there's no way around not learning that. But your job is then to, then to go back and assess after you've given the tablet and make sure your patient isn't sedated and that they're actually getting pain relief. The other thing to understand is that there is no limit, there's no maximum amount of medication that the patient except as limited by function and, and sedation. So if your patient is still awake, cannot breathe and move, and is still giving you pain scores of 8 out of 10, then they either need more of the same medication and within that onset time we were talking about if you're outside of that you can now you can there's no reason not to repeat the same dose that the patient had so your job is that ongoing assessment and communication so if your patient's order has a maximum of 20 milligrams and it's 10 o'clock in the morning and it's 20 milligrams for the day then you need to be communicating to the the surgical team or the medical team that this patient's already used up their medication, their pain is out of 10, they can't move, and you really need them to be reviewed for more analgesia. So your job is that communication between you and the patient and you and the medical team for the patient, advocating for the patient for our goal, and our goal is a moving patient, and that's really what you should be aiming at. Is there things that don't involve medications that we can do for pain? Never underestimate the value of cold or hot. So uh, cryotherapy, um, so cold, has been shown to uh, decrease the rate of nerve firing. Once you drop the flesh by six degrees, you decrease the rate of nerve firing. So cold is amazing, plus the effects on on immune um, response, decreasing pressure under a patella for a sore knee, for example. Heat, uh, heat increases serotonin and noradrenaline to the spinal cord and decreases the rate of, of nerve transmission. Uh, things like TENS, uh, there's now good evidence for uh, high-frequency TENS that it will alter dopamine, um, opiates, serotonin, noradrenaline. So all of the things we give in our pill bottles, it will actually increase those to the spinal cord and alter nerve transmission as well. Never underestimate the value of positioning and elevation. So so many times patients just can't find where to put themselves and they, they really need those pillow cradles we're used to making to support those joints properly. We're very good at putting the patient out of bed and leaving them sitting there because we know that when they put them back to bed, they'll want to stay there. But they're actually, in a rehab point of view, better off doing small, frequent activities. So a patient who sits out of bed for every meal is going to get as many as much value as the patient that sat out of bed for two hours, except that their nervous system isn't going to get overwrought by the amount of pain it's put in by the second hour that was too much for them. So pacing activity is super important and getting them to do, helping them to do small frequent. They're going to achieve more and, and recover quicker. Is there a role for distraction? Absolutely. And is a growing problem with the, the TVs nothing in our wards, to be honest with you, because, because sometimes it's the only distraction that they're capable of. Patients can't look at small screens or books and stay awake. And so, yeah, the value of distraction is definitely there. Visitors, friends, conversations you're having with them, all of those things are, are useful. Is that why people report often that their pain is worse at night? 
So the reason, one of the reasons that your pain towards the end of the day gets worse is that your cortisol levels diminish. So your cortisol levels um, rise as a peak just after you wake up in the morning and they're very high initial peak and that gives you energy to move and it gives you lots of focus and it calms your nervous system down and it actually is analgesic. And as you go through the day, that then sort of does that initial high peak and then it sort of slowly peters off. So by the end of the day, you don't have that dampening effect on your nervous system and so your pain is often worse by the end of the day. Mm. That's brilliant. I mean... (laughs) I was riveted. <laughs> I know it wasn't new It's been to- a crash course in pain <laughs> for Liz. <laughs> I know it wasn't new to you and Jesse, but I was like, what? I'm glad this isn't on TikTok. My mouth was wide open. <laughs> Catching flies. Yeah, exactly. All right, I'm going to summarise. I'm not even going to try with the science behind it, but basically you've taught us five really important things about pain today. The first was what is it and how we should treat it. The second was the importance of understanding the connection between pain and stress, which then led us immediately on to how important it is to reassure the brain by just doing some basic functions to turn that pain down a little bit and tell tell the body that it's safe and it's going to be okay. The fourth is assessing pain and function, uh, and that includes how awake a patient is and how well they're able to, to move and do what they need to do. And last but most importantly is how important the role everybody, I guess, has in playing a part in healing and also helping people manage their pain. Sounds like I did a good job. (laughs) What a fantastic podcast. Thanks very much, Melanie. Thank Thank you, you, Melanie. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 